Hello, today we're speaking with Brendan Banfield, co-founder and CEO at Gridsight. Welcome to the podcast, Brendan. Thanks, James. Thanks for having me. Brilliant. To start, what drove the initial decision to start Gridsight? Yeah, great question. So Gridsight was founded around two years ago. So I've studied electrical engineering as my background, and I'd worked for um, an electrical utility here in Australia while I was studying my bachelor's. So that was yeah, probably about, I started there in 2012, so quite some time ago now. But when I was there, I kind of got exposure to, I guess, how these utilities operate. I really got a lot of exposure to some of the challenges that they were facing. So here in Australia, um, we saw some really large rapid uptake and are still seeing a lot of rapid uptake in uh, renewables, particularly small scale rooftop solar PV. And this rapid uptake caught a lot of these utilities by surprise, particularly how it relates to the constraints that are being seen on the grid as a result of these small scale renewables. So I had that exposure early on and kind of realized how these utilities were operating. And then once I finished my bachelor's, I I came back to do a PhD. So I was doing this PhD, leading a a team of students building a smart solar powered house here in Australia. So we took that house to Dubai for a competition called the Solar Decathlon in 2018. So this house had, you know, all the bells and whistles It had solar, batteries, smart air conditioner, EV charger, all these cool pieces of technology. And um, once we brought the house back to Australia, it was rebuilt at a microgrid at my university's campus. And that's where I undertook a lot of my research. So I was using a lot of data from the microgrid to, I guess, model the um, network itself. So more data-driven um, applications to modeling electrical networks, as well as controlling some of those, you know, the solar and batteries in the grid as well to help, I guess, improve the network constraints and ensure the network remains safe and reliable. So it was during this time I realized that, you know, all this technology already exists. And with all the data that's now available to these utilities, there's a lot better way that they could be managing these small scale assets on the network that's not currently being done. So that kind of got the wheels turning that, you know, the technology is there. It's just the implementation that's required. So it was based out of that, that I um, contacted one of my best friends, Kurt, who is now co-founder as well, who's got a background in the startup space and was kind of explaining what I was thinking around, I guess, Gridside itself. And yeah, basically that night decided to to give it a go and yeah, create Gridside. Those those moments, right, are so exciting. You're like, we're actually, you know, we're going to do it. And now we only have, whatever, decades ahead of us to, to, to do all the work and the execution and so on. And so I guess from that kind of initial decision, what did those next kind of three to six months look like? And, you know, what were the, I guess, early versions of the product before you kind of got to the direction that you are today? Yeah, so the early version of the product... So I took a lot of what I was, I guess, doing related to my PhD. And um, so I was doing my PhD at the University of Wollongong as well. And they have uh, the division within the University of Wollongong that I was doing my PhD under is the Australian Power Quality and Reliability Centre. And they have a lot of ties to industry. So once I decided that this was something I wanted to, I guess, pursue, I uh, spun up a really pretty janky MVP. So just basically a web application surfacing some of the insights related to this microgrid that I was doing my PhD in. So, you know, what the hosting capacity was. So hosting capacity is how much renewables the microgrid can safely host, um, the performance in terms of any voltage constraints and that sort of thing. Um, So once I built that, I managed to sit down with a couple of, I guess, stakeholders from other utilities and just basically walk them through the product and see if that was, you know, what we're doing was um, of interest. And that was enough to spark some interest to kind of get to that next step where, you know, we knew we had something and we had potential users out there who were interested in what we were doing. 
So at that point, after we uh, built that minimum viable product, it was time to get someone who actually had some, I guess, uh, web development and application development skills in. I'm more on the data science side. So that's when we got our second co-founder, Hugh, who is, yeah, his background's in yeah, web development and I guess uh, building applications for startups. So that was a, about about three months in that we got Hugh on as a co-founder. And from there, we managed to get a project up and running with Evo Energy, who was the utility I worked with when I was doing my bachelor's degree. So that was really good. It gave us, I guess, you know, the ability to test our software and solutions in a you know, real network environment, just kind of a microgrid like it, uh, it was at my university. So that was really good to kind of get runs on the board early, particularly considering the industry we're in. It's often quite difficult to get in and get projects and pilots up and running with utilities. They're very, you know, slow moving beasts. So being able to do that so early on in our journey was, yeah, was excellent for us. And that was definitely going to be my next question. You know, when investors and a lot of kind of founders are thinking about what are the easiest to most difficult customers to have for your product, you know, governments are generally on the most difficult side and maybe utilities are like one minor notch to the left of that. And so, but the opportunities are absolutely massive, right? Because there's so much money kind of pouring through these entities. They have such a kind of crucial aspect for the, you know, the infrastructure that the energy infrastructure all around us. And so getting so quickly, that's amazing to hear, but I guess, were there any kind of particular repeatable like insights for how you got, were able to get that so quickly, or was it a bit kind of, you know, fortunate accidental? Yeah, it's a, it's a constant, it's a constant learning curve. So we, yeah, we were told very early on in the piece, you know, when we basically would mention to, you know, investors and advisors and the like that we're building software to assist utilities it you know, automatically brought up some red flags and that was, you know, saying it's going to be very difficult for you guys. But we believe, you know, and we've found so far that um, the key is just finding a team within these organizations that's really passionate about, I guess, this change that we're seeing on the grid. And if we can find that team and find that internal champion that's really passionate about progressing things forward within their organization, once you find that person and once you find that team, it's really easy from there. So we we take a really, really collaborative approach with our clients at the moment. So we have meetings with them weekly. We have them on our you know Slack channel and all those sorts of things, So which they really appreciate. So I think it's taking a bit of a different look on how you um, work with these utilities. It's not just the fact that we're selling them software. It's that we're providing them software, but also becoming part of their team and working with them collaboratively throughout that whole journey. So once we do that, it's a lot easier to become sticky and we're kind of collaboratively building solutions that are not only going to help them, but if it's helping them, it's probably going to be helping, you know, the broader industry as a whole. So that's the, I guess, method we've taken so far. So once we find that team, just working really closely with them and basically becoming part of their team as well. Yeah, I think that's that's really interesting. You know, when you're trying to like navigate these large thousand person entities, right, whether it's a large corporation, a utility, those kind of folks, you often have just like a ton of, you know, different parts of the organization don't know what other parts of the organization are doing. And it can, for folks who haven't kind of worked in large organizations like that, it can kind of seem strange. It's like, oh, we got refused by the organization, but you haven't really been refused by like this one small slice of it. And nobody else knows about that slice or that slice is not really communicating. And, you know, I, I worked previously in a, at an 18,000 person company. We went from 1,000 to 18 in that time frame. And it would happen to us, people selling at us. And then I was also selling into very, very large financial institutions and also had a similar experience where you'd have a no, but like there's still 9,000 people to go after potentially. And so you try to find that champion who can kind of be that your representative to the people you need to get in front of within the company itself. And so I think, yeah, I think 
there was this fear of kind of tackling utilities across the startup world. But as you've shown, and as I think can be learned by a lot of startups, you just need to figure out the org chart and just start working your way through it until you eventually find that champion. Because there are a lot of people in those organizations frustrated by how slowly those organizations are moving in these directions. And so those are the real opportunities. And so I guess like once you kind of had identified that particular person, what the, and you, you mentioned having this kind of conversation, this very collaborative back and forth, co-developing co the product from the sounds of it and, and all those kind of elements. And so what, what does the product look like today? And you know, if I was a utility and I was interested in implementing GridSite, what would that experience be like? Yeah, great question. So the product at the moment, um, or our main product at the moment is called Grid Analytics. So it's a web application software platform that provides in-depth insights related to the low voltage network. So where houses are connected and that sort of thing. So we combine multiple disparate data sources that's available to these utilities. So I guess we're very data agnostic in that sense. So we ingest, you know, GIS data, like their network map and topology. We ingest any smart meter data they have. If they have data coming in from solar and batteries on the grid, we ingest that as well. Any asset monitoring devices like transformer monitors and those sorts of things. So that in and of itself is one benefit, basically having a one-stop shop where they can see all their data. At the moment, the workflows for these utilities, you know, if they want to do any kind of work related across many different data sets, they've got to do a SQL query here and a, a data download here and try and combine it in Excel. Which DOS is and CSVs and, and yeah, Excel. Very, very cumbersome. But at the moment, that platform is targeted basically to identifying end-to-end -end hosting capacity issues. So as I said before, hosting capacity is essentially the amount of uh, renewable energy technologies that the grid can host safely and reliably. So we surface a lot of insights related to the small-scale renewables on the grid, solar, batteries, electric vehicle chargers, and how they're operating at the, I guess, individual customer level, but then also modeling back up the network as well and showing how these systems are potentially affecting network safety and reliability. And where this is happening, we provide solutions on how you can improve that network hosting capacity. So the primary goal of this platform is to assist these utilities in basically managing the fully decentralized and decarbonized grid that can host 100% renewables. Because here in Australia at the moment, we're already seeing, you know, utilities are having to put limits on solar installations and those sorts of things when we only have, you know, we have very high penetrations of solar around one in three houses here in Australia has solar PV, which is pretty crazy. But we want to get to a point where every house can have solar. And at the moment, just with the huge amounts of, you know, hundreds of thousands of systems out there and the huge quantities of data, they don't have the capacity to manage that at the moment. So that's where we're stepping in, managing the constraints associated with tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of small-scale renewables to assist these utilities in making this transition to 100% renewables. And once the uh, utilities deployed GridSite and it say, okay, this is, this is a particular region in our grid, in our network, a geographic region where we're going, we have right now some capacity concerns. Like what actions then does the grid take to kind of mitigate those concerns? Yeah, so there's, I guess, a host of solutions that can be undertaken. And that's one of the, I guess, benefits of the grid site platform as well. We can explore those different solutions. So some of them is, are as simple as basically performing a tap change. So a tap change is where you can just reduce the voltage at the transformer. So if you can reduce the voltage at the transformer, sometimes you can unlock some additional hosting capacity. Some other, I guess, solutions are things like phase rebalancing. So here in Australia, we have a lot of solar PV systems and EV chargers and those sorts of things, which are only installed on a single phase. And quite often you'll find that you might have a portion of the electrical network and just it so happens that, you know, you have 
50 PV systems installed on phase A and only 10 on phase B and six on phase C. So being able to just swap some of those phases is a, a really, I guess, low hanging fruit solution to being able to improve the capacity of the network. But then we're also starting to dive into the more, I guess, advanced non-network solutions as well. So that's things like um, there's an idea of or a concept called a dynamic operating envelope. So that's where you can actually dynamically shift the amount of import or export of these assets. So, for example, you may have a 10 kilowatt solar system that's allowed to export freely to 10 kilowatts all around the year. But maybe there's a few days where the network's constrained where you might want to wind that generation down to eight or seven kilowatts just to ensure the network remains safely and reliable, safe and reliable. So we're starting to explore uh, and hopefully implement some of those solutions as well with more the dynamic shifting of import and export of these assets. Because at the moment, some of these utilities are just looking at putting static export limits in. So for example, South Australia bringing in a mandate that no matter how big your solar PV system is, you can only export at 1.5 kilowatts. So even if you had a 10 kilowatt system, you're limited to that small export. So we don't really want to see that. We want to see the maximum amount of renewable energy on the grid. So we're starting to explore these more smarter solutions where you can actually leverage the existing infrastructure, all these solar and batteries and those sorts of things to improve the grid as opposed to just putting hard heuristic-based rules uh, into the network. That's that's really fascinating. I think there's it's kind of complex because most of our audience is based in the US, although we definitely have Australian listeners. You know, I'm originally from from Ireland, grew up mostly in Europe. And so all these different systems, you know, the utilities will have a lot of overlapping concerns, will operate in very similar ways. But sometimes the incentive models can be quite different in terms of who the rate payer is, who cares about the tariffs and all those kind of things. Can you speak to how those kind of incentives affect how a utility approaches things like adjusting and, and responding to capacity concerns? Yeah, so that's, that's a, I guess, the million dollar question at the moment. So it still hasn't been solved uh, correctly, the, the tariff incentives. The way we're seeing this unfolding at the moment is um, it could be implemented that, or the way some utilities are looking at it is when people install these renewables, they'll have either a, a static export limit. So as I said before, just a flat, say 1.5 kilowatts, or they'll be able to um, sign up for a dynamic limit that can change um, based on the network constraints. So you might be able to export all the way up to 10 kilowatts in a few days of the year. Um, it might wind down to five, say. In terms of the tariffs though, or that sort of, um, I guess, dynamic export limiting does still allow for um, people like virtual power plant operators to play in that space. So the virtual power plant operators can come in and all the utility is saying is here's the upper bound, like he can play anywhere within that within that limit. So the, util, uh, the virtual power plant operators can come in and still play within the market, participate in energy arbitrage and really provide you know benefits and incentives for the end users. Uh, in terms of the, the incentives to the end users from the utility though, still not entirely sure on the best approach for that. I think education is absolutely key and really engaging the customers a lot more in terms of educating them on why this is important and how this is going to benefit them in the long run as opposed to hinder them. But yeah, I think just whether it's financial incentive or whatever it may be, something along those lines, along with the education piece, should be enough to ensure that these consumers are you know, getting the most out of their investment and understand why you know, managing these large scale of uh, renewables, while you think it might be hindering you in the long run, it's not only benefiting you, but benefiting the entire grid as well. And you mentioned a couple of times the 
more kind of this residential solar, which Australia is absolutely the kind of world leader in having such a large penetration of residential solar being on, as you said, a, a third of homes. What about the kind of larger community, as they call it in the US, or utility scale project developments, when a developer is potentially bringing hundreds of megawatts onto the grid at a particular point, typically called an interconnection point? How, I guess, you know, when a utility is dealing with an individual consumer, right, they're giving some sort of price signal, right? It's like, we will allow your energy onto the, the grid or not. And that's kind of where it ends. When you're dealing with these kind of much more larger developers and entities, there must be more of a back and forth to try to figure out because, you know, the developer doesn't want to put in millions of dollars into developing somewhere where the utility just won't let them kind of connect to the grid. And so have you seen use cases for grid sites, insights, grid sites, insights for uh, those kind of use cases as well? Yeah, so we don't deal as much with the, I guess, really large scale solar farms and that sort of thing. That's kind of a different beast entirely. But in terms of kind of the smaller developments, for example, you know, there might be a new suburb or development going in with, you know, and they plan on having, so for example, with Evo Energy, who we worked with, they have some suburbs that had 100% mandated solar. That's actually what our first project with them was related to, looking at the constraints associated with these suburbs. So what we can do currently in the platform is we kind of look at the constraints all the way up the, the network hierarchy. So we look all the way down to the individual customer, but then we extrapolate that out to entire basically zone substations. So we're talking tens of thousands of customers. So using this, it can be very easy to identify with some of the visualizations we do where these constraints are. So for example, if a development was going in and you saw it was going into this particular zone substation, you could look at the surrounding parts of the network and determine, hey, this part of the network is already constrained. If a suburb goes in that's going to have 100% mandated solar, that's going to lead to significantly more constraints. So that's where we can start looking at, I guess, more larger scale network solutions. So things potentially like community batteries or some more advanced control strategies across that zone to try and facilitate that new development going in. So it's really about looking at the the data we have available and trying to isolate the pockets of networks where there are constraints and being able to access that data really efficiently and quickly. So planning engineer can go in, have a look at where the suburb's going. There's no constraints here currently. We should probably be okay. That's fascinating. And so Nerdy needs to have quite a few stakeholders involved, right? So the real estate developer is putting in a hundred home suburb or you know, a thousand home suburb. Like they obviously are like, okay, one of the selling points to the the buyer of these homes is the fact that they'll have cheap or free or even maybe make some money from the solar panels on the on the roof. But if the as you said, like the capacity is already kind of tapped out in that area, the utility must have concerns. So I guess is there like a planning process to, to connect the suburban developer to understand like the the capacity constraints so that that conversation is happening at the right time? Or, you know, as what's often happens in the US, which the market I know a bit better, there's a lot of just reaction that's occurring. And, and then you start to see bottlenecks and the development kind of just stretches out to three years and things you know slow down to a crawl. Yeah, particularly at that level, it's still very reactionary. So there's a lot of improvement that can be done at that level. Yeah, these utilities just, as they operate, they're very, I guess, reactionary entities. So there's certainly a lot that can be improved in that space. And I think the way the industry is heading at the moment, there is a lot of consideration going into how we can manage this growth in the next five to 10 years, as opposed to being more you know, reactionary in the sense. So I think um, you know, lots of projects are going up with community batteries and those sorts of things, even large scale 
um, batteries in parts of the areas where there's constraints. So yeah, it's still a, a very challenging process, particularly once you then not only do you have the customers, but also developers and and those sorts of things brought into the mix as well. Yeah, it still hasn't been solved, I don't think, yet. But I think some of the work we're doing, and particularly using data to unlock parts of the network where you're experiencing constraints, is really going to be key in assisting these transition and making sure that all stakeholders have a really transparent view of how these systems will operate and then how it will not only benefit or how it will affect the grid in the long run, but also affect the end consumers too. Yeah, this kind of... The idea of deploying your own battery and basically starting to see more and more microgrids being built, right? And a lot of microgrids historically and still today are being built with resiliency is the first kind of concern. We don't want to use the grid. Obviously, Australia has had you know its fair share of issues with, with forest fires, wildfires as, as the Western United States has had, and then you you know have hurricane seasons and so on in the Eastern United States and around the world. You know, similar kind of climate and increasingly bad uh, climate effects on things like energy in the grid. So. You know, we're starting to have a lot more microgrids, a lot more resiliency built in. But then we're also starting to see the ability or the idea that as you start to deploy these battery storage and these kind of things, you start to actually also produce the ability for the owner of the asset to potentially make some income from that. And so rather than just solar panels back onto the, the grid and you just sell your excess energy from your solar panels, if you have a battery, whether it's standalone storage within the the home that you live in, or eventually things like the battery in your electric vehicle. These are opportunities to do things like grid stabilization and sorry, services and so on. How are you thinking about that like bi-directional structure as you have just more ubiquitous batteries kind of occurring across the grid, whether it's EV to grid or just batteries within the home and how you know grid site can kind of incorporate that data as well? Yeah, yeah, that's that's a really good one. So we're we're doing quite a bit of work at the moment, like still early stages but how we can increase, I guess, the benefits of renewable energy, particularly in isolated microgrids. So here in Australia, we have a large interconnected energy system. However, there are small pockets, particularly Australia is you know, really large, where we have some isolated microgrids that are relying on basically renewables and diesel generation. So we're looking there at how we can apply some of the analytics to ensure that basically we're maximizing the amount of renewables in these microgrids while trying to minimize the amount of reliance on diesel generation. So that's going to ultimately benefit the customers who own those assets too. But yeah, in terms of, I guess, system stability and ancillary services like free frequency control, at the moment, a lot of that is being, I guess, managed by, you know, the VPP operators and the DERM systems or distributed energy resource management systems. We see ourselves at the moment sitting at the, I guess, layer above that, basically orchestrating at what levels um, these assets can import and export to ensure that the network still remains, I guess, reliable and operating within its bounds. So the way that can happen is we can use our network models and data to calculate and set those limits. And then the virtual power plant operators and the distributed or the DERM systems can play within those other ancillary markets, like the frequency control, ancillary service market, and that sort of thing. So I think it's going to be a very, I guess, collaborative and multi-layered infrastructure that's going to be I guess, monitoring and managing these systems. So, you know, you're going to have, for example, an entity like GridSite who's managing the network constraints as it pertains to the poles and wires. And then there's also going to be, you know, your Teslas of the world and those sorts of things who have control over a host of battery systems that can respond to events such as large generators dropping offline and they can um, step in to increase the frequency. So I think it's going to be, yeah, it's going to be many 
systems and it's just going to be a matter of all these different entities being really open in the way that we integrate with one another. I think, you know, traditionally when you're thinking enterprise software, they've been very siloed in the past. One system sits here and it doesn't work with anything else and the other system sits over here. Whereas we really want to, and we're starting to do this now, kind of open up our platform and our solutions so that other people can, or other entities can use our services and conversely, we can um, use theirs as well. That's really interesting. You know, there's this kind of very common refrain from grid operators, utilities in the United States about sharing too much uh, capacity data, that it's, there's a security concern related to that. Do you hear similar from utilities in Australia? Because there, there are definitely capacity maps in places like New York State that kind of put, put a pressure on this idea that there's a security concern because New York also has security concerns. But yeah, I guess, does that ever come up as a, as a concern in Australia? Absolutely. And it still is a big concern. So to be frank, if we were doing GridSight four years ago, we would have failed miserably just because we're a cloud software platform. And there is no way four years ago that these utilities would have been open to sending their data to a, a cloud software platform to, to run analytics and that sort of thing. Um, we're really starting to see that shift now, just purely because, well, for a few reasons, I think utilities have opened up to the fact that, you know, this change is happening really rapidly and they need to do something about it now before it gets too out of hand. And due to the really vast quantities of data that they're starting to see, you know, the operational overheads and costs associated with, you know, hosting things in, um, internally is becoming prohibitively expensive. So, yeah, that's where we've seen some of the benefits and it's still, still, I guess, a complex part of the business we need to navigate. Um, we've done it a few times now and, you know, it's just the the steps that you need to take to ensure that their, you know, their data is remaining really safe and secure. So we've, we've engaged and hired some, some really, really, I guess, people who have significant knowledge in this space in terms of data security. So one of our advisors who's working with us, he's, you know, he's worked across finance and health where data security and privacy is extremely extremely important. So we're putting some of those mechanisms in place and working really closely when we're onboarding these utilities and talking with them, letting them know that the infrastructure we have in place and the data is extremely safe and reliable and will remain secure. But moreover, these utilities themselves, some of them, the more advanced ones here in Australia anyway, they themselves are starting to open up and implement some of their own cloud systems. So really seeing the benefits or starting to realize that there's a lot of benefits in this technology, which has made them a lot more open to Startups like us, who are obviously cloud-based and not really an on-premises software. And then on, on terms of the policy side of things, so, you know, there are various kind of incentives programs that have been deployed to kind of encourage renewables. You also have sometimes just federal money to help with things like build out a distribution and transmission lines for utilities to kind of take advantage of. In terms of like the policy framework in Australia, like, are there things that could be improved, you know, are there areas where, you know, money is being directed in, in ways that are maybe counterproductive and other kind of opportunities for policymakers to say, okay, you know, in some cases, maybe we want to get very, very involved and give incentives in some places, maybe we want to get out of the way that the market is doing quite well. And so how do you think about that balance? Yeah, so I guess the biggest issue with policy related to the utilities here in Australia at the moment is essentially the access to smart meter data. So the primary data source that we use within our platform is from smart meters themselves. So the meters that are on people's homes. And it used to be that the utility did own these meters. And then about five years ago, some government regulations came in known as power of choice, where essentially they wanted to spin off the metering component 
of basically an electrical network into a separate entity called metering coordinators. And what that has led to is basically the fact that utilities no longer have direct access to this data. So they actually need to purchase this smart metering data off these entities called metering coordinators. And it's really difficult because, you know, essentially these metering coordinators, there's two really major ones here in Australia, and basically they're monopolies because, and it's really difficult for these utilities to kind of bargain with these metering coordinators because the metering coordinator now has all the power. They have all the meters, they have all the data. The utility can't go anywhere else unless they want to, you know, fork out millions and millions of dollars and put their own monitoring equipment in the network. So I'm really hoping, and it's starting to change, but really hoping to see some um, improved reforms around that. So giving these utilities better access to this data because the data has so much value and it's only going to benefit the consumers if the utilities get access to these vast quantities of data. So as opposed to spending, these utilities spend significant amounts of times, you know, bargaining with these metering coordinators, you know, going back and forth, purchasing some data, but not others. And it's really a a game of dollars and cents where if I think if more government regulations came in that just gave access to the utilities for this data, it's only going to really drive more innovation in this sector and really benefit the consumers in the long run, as opposed to kind of this really, I guess, regulated world we're living in at the moment that's causing a lot of stifling of this innovation. Uh, Yeah, it's... It's a real kind of tough thing. I mean, I've been kind of working on a project with a few folks about like trying to start to layer and stack how all these incentives operate because it's quite difficult to know, right? So sometimes it's like, oh, this might be a really big opportunity and you start to see entrepreneurs potentially starting to build something in that space. And then all of a sudden it's like, well, there's actually all these countervailing forces that mean what looks like an incentive actually has all these other things that are that are working against it. And so... and. The, these incentives and even the disincentives of other things, tariffs, etc., like they're nearly always done with the best like idea in mind, right? Like people are not trying to deliberately to to mess things up, but there's a lot of these kind of unintended consequences. And so, yeah, I mean, it's really kind of fascinating where Gridsite is up to. You know, what's your kind of goals over the next twelve months for the company? Yeah, so um, we've got a really strong team at the moment. So we've managed to build like an absolutely excellent team. You know, really, really talented engineers. Um, so the goal at the moment is to continue growing, I guess, grid analytics platform here throughout Australia. As I mentioned earlier, we're starting to get into this space. So at the moment, the analytics purely kind of data-driven looking at historical data, but we're starting to get into this space, um, as I mentioned earlier, related to actually controlling some of these assets on the grid. So basically providing an end-to-end hosting capacity solution. So utility identifies in our grid analytics platform, this part of the network's constrained. They can see there's a lot of solar and they engage GridSite to basically put our constraint engine on that part of the network and start managing that solar to ensure that we're getting the maximum amount of uh, renewable energy on that part of the grid while we're remaining safe and reliable. So the kind of that end-to-end closed-loop solution is where we're heading. But I guess externally outside Australia, we're really interested in potentially looking at the US as well. Obviously, Hawaii and California, really significant amounts of solar in their grid as well. Um, we're not only looking at solar too, but the really large amounts of electric vehicles that are coming on the grid. So one of our clients, Well Networks, they're based out of New Zealand and don't have as much of a solar problem, but are starting to see a lot more electric vehicle charges coming in the home. So looking more at how we can manage those constraints along with the, the solar-related constraints. And then also potentially exploring parts of Europe as well. You know, Germany has really significant amounts of solar, as does Italy and Spain. Norway has huge amounts of electric vehicles. So starting to target these parts of the the world where we're starting to see 
huge uptake of renewables as kind of the world leaders. And we feel if we can kind of solve the problems there in these really world leading countries where we're seeing huge amounts of small scale renewables, then we'll have the software infrastructure ready when, you know, the rest of the world starts to catch up so we can assist, you know, not only Australia, but the world in reaching that 100% renewable target. Yeah, no, it's, it's really exciting. And I think it is interesting to start in Australia, which is definitely the world leader. And, you know, in the United States, different states, different you know, regions, ISOs, et cetera, like look to California and California is two to three years ahead of New York. And New York is a couple of years ahead of, you know, other parts of the country all the way down to, you know, some random Great Plains states that, you know, haven't really started working towards any of this in the first place. And so, but everyone will get there, right? Like this is like yeah. a technological force that that is just occurring, but it is like fascinating like also just the opportunity for you around pure population, right? The LA metro area probably has a similar population size to the East Coast of, of all of Australia. So, you know, just getting into uh, California, I'm sure has a huge amount of upside and you only have to deal with three, maybe four uh, utilities. And I'm sure the sales cycles will be quite long, but like once you get in there, like the opportunities are vast. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, that's the thing with the clients we work with here, they have so Endeavor Energy, our largest client here in Australia, has around a thousand kind of connections on their network. Whereas, you know, we're talking with some some overseas utilities before and they're saying, you know, we've got, oh, sorry, they have a million connections. But we've spoken with some overseas utilities and, you know, they mentioned, you know, we've got 8 million, 10 million, 12 million. It's just a vastly, vastly bigger grid. But that's exciting for us. Like, you know, we want to be solving problems that have a, I guess, benefit and impact across millions of people with across gigawatts and gigawatts of distributed energy resources. No, absolutely. And thinking about like as building like building a startup in Australia, right? There's a reason I'm building a company myself in the US because it's just a lot easier. And you know, even expression uh, that we don't use as much, but it's a very similar concept to what life is like in, in Ireland called tall poppy syndrome. Like this idea that like I always like joke, the most successful people in Ireland are pretty well correlated to the people who are kind of mocked the most, right? And and there's like a, a certain type of kind of fondness and, and sense of humor to that type of cynicism. But it definitely you know, goes against the idea of startup world where everyone's trying to build billion dollar companies and you've got to believe it, even when it's very, very difficult. So how have you found like ways that being based in Australia and building the company in Australia both helps and hinders the trajectory of a startup? Yeah. So from a help standpoint, it's definitely kind of what we've been talking about. Australia is leading the charge in the uptake of small-scale renewables at the moment in a lot of senses. So being able to solve the challenges here, um, we're starting to see these challenges crop up in other parts of the world, but really being able to kind of solve the idea of network hosting capacity here in Australia really, I guess, gives us a leg up on other parts of the world that might not be considering it as as much yet. Also, the fact that it's a very, I guess, tight-knit you know, community here, the energy sector as a whole, you know, we only have 13 electrical utilities in the country and they all work very closely together and talk with one another. So once we kind of get in and start doing really good work with one utility, it word gets out to another and we can begin conversations with them, which is, I guess, a benefit in terms of growing our business here. In terms of expanding though, uh, it is a challenge. We still haven't taken a real deep dive at going into the US, but we have spoken with investors and stuff over that side of the world who are hesitant in investing in, or some are anyway, hesitant in investing in a company that's not incorporated in the US and those sorts of things. But we're just going to take those challenges as it comes. You know, we'll, we'll probably end up doing a, you know, potentially a Series A sometime next year. And at that point, we may incorporate as a Delaware C Corp and those sorts of things. So there's lots of, I guess, mechanisms we can put in place that can hopefully, 
assist us in taking that more global expansion. So yeah, it, it is a challenge, but I think from a technical standpoint, we're poised really well to be able to implement and solve some challenges related to distributed energy resources on the grid here in Australia. And hopefully once we do kind of expand um, into the more global landscape, people will see, I guess, from a technical standpoint, um, what we're able to do and how we're able to solve it here in Australia, where there's so much um, renewable energy that if we can solve it here, we can solve it in other parts of the world too. If you can make it there, you can make it anywhere. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, you know, Brendan, I've really enjoyed the conversation. I guess before we finish up, is there anything I should have asked you about but did not? Yeah, so at the moment we're kind of just rolling through a, a seed round, so getting a bit, um, a final bit of investment in at the moment. Yeah, we're also looking at, as we've discussed today, getting in talks with potentially utilities and those sorts of things within Hawaii, California, um, even New York, if it, if it works, just to start getting an idea on some of the challenges they're facing and how they're managing small-scale renewables on the grid. So we're always looking to learn and understand more about what's happening on the global landscape. So yeah, that's where we're at at the moment. Brilliant. And we'll include some contact details in the show notes. Uh, thank you, Brendan. Thanks, James. Cheers. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or the Google Play Store. I cannot express how appreciated it is. And we'll be back next week with another episode.